Once upon a time, uh, a spaceship arrived on a strange planet. And they came down, didn't seem to be anything living on it. And they put a lot of stores in. And uh, finally they found that some little bugs were eating the, the grain that they had stored. So they got insecticides and fixed those bugs. And later they found they had mice. And they were nibbling up things, so they got some cats sent on the next spaceship from Earth. And the cats took care of the mice. Then, lo and behold, dogs turned up, started making trouble for the cats. So uh, they um, decided uh, that they'd better shoot the dogs, and they did. And one day they saw suddenly a man coming over the horizon with a gun. And they said to the chief, look at that, There's, uh, there are people on this planet after all, and he's got a gun, shall we, shall we, uh, shall we shoot him? And he said, no, because I have no, no way of knowing what it will turn up as the next time. <laughs> there was once a wonderful Zen master called Ikkyu, and uh, he lived in Kyoto, and in front of his temple, there was a very nubbly, gnarled pine tree. And one day he posted a notice by this pine tree which said, I will give 100 yen, which was quite a sum in those days, to anybody who can see this tree straight. So soon there were all kinds of people standing around the tree, lying on the ground, trying to climb up on the wall above it and find an angle from which the central trunk of the tree could be seen as a straight line. There was one fellow who knew there was some monkey business going on, as there would be with a Zen master poses a problem. And so he went to a friend of Ikkyu's who was a priest of another sect, but Ikkyu was very friendly with this priest. And uh, this priest was called, uh, what was his name? Something like Ryomon. And uh, Ryomon said, the simple way to see the tree straight is, of course, to look straight at it. And so the man went back to Ikkyu and said, I have solved the problem of the tree. He said, to see it straight, you look straight at it. And Ikkyu looked at him very suspiciously because he, he wasn't convinced that this man was a real understanding man. But he nevertheless, he forked out the hundred yen and said, you must have been talking to Ryoman. <laughs> For the last time, I'm pretty sure what's killing the crops is this Brondo stuff. But Brondo's got what plants crave. It's got electrolytes. So wait a minute. What you're saying is that you want us to put water on the crops? Yes. Water. Like out the toilet? Well, I mean, it doesn't have to be out of the toilet, but, but yeah, that's the idea. But Brondo's got what plants crave. It's got electrolytes. Okay, look. The plants aren't growing, so I'm pretty sure that the Brondo's not working. Now, I'm no botanist, but I do know that if you put water on plants, they grow. Well, I've never seen no plants grow out of no toilet. Hey, that's good. You sure you ain't the smartest guy in the world? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, look. You want to solve this problem. I want to get my pardon, so why don't we just try it, okay? And not worry about what plants crave. Brando's got what plants crave. 
Yeah, it's got electrolytes. What are electrolytes? Do you even know? It's what they use to make Brondo. Yeah, but why did they use them to make Brondo? Because Brondo's got electrolytes. <laughs> <laughs> Hello everybody, we are back with another episode of the Plants Are People 2 podcast. Uh, recording in the morning this time, usually record at night, but it's been a while since I've actually, I recorded my last episode early, so um, yeah, it feels like I haven't done this in a little bit, but we are back and today we're going to talk about uh, Epipactus specifically, which is the false hellebore orchid. It's a very common orchid in the New England region. It's technically non-native. I don't know if I would call it invasive, although I do see it everywhere, but it's usually not in high densities, like other things that we would call invasive plants, like bittersweet or honeysuckle, um, but the orchid family, Orchidaceae, in New England, uh, well, let's say in the world, it's, it's usually debated if it's the largest family of plants in the world, um, alongside Asteraceae, but 28,000 species, um, and they find new species pretty frequently probably every, every year, every other year, there's new orchid species found. Um, and so in New England specifically, I think there's, what did I say, 18, 21 species in New England. Uh, some of the more common ones around here are genera like Goodyera, which is the rattlesnake plantain orchid. Um, the the downy rattlesnake plantain orchid in particular is a frequent understory plant in the northern hardwood forest that we have in Vermont and New England. Um, there are a couple other species in there that are, you can find them out there. Corleriza is another one that is uh, very common out there. They're kind of easy to ID because they bloom at different times of the year. So there's early coral root, uh, I forget what the, the mid-season one is called, and then there's late or fall coral root. Uh, Cyperidium, which is the uh, lady slipper orchid, the very common, uh, it used to be, when I was a kid growing up, there were a lot of, I don't know if there were reports, or maybe my parents were talking about it one time, but there was a common understanding that those particular plants were not to be harvested and there was this like air of protection around them. I don't see them as frequently in Vermont or, you know, when I was a kid growing up walking through the, I guess it's a, a fire adapted pitch pine forest area and oak, there's oaks in there too. Um, probably a little bit drier than up in Vermont. But um, they would be, you know, all over the place. You would see, you know, 20, 30, 40 in a population. Uh, now here, you know, walking out in the woods, I, I don't see them very often. 
Um, and when I do see them, it's it's two or three or four, uh, not very many. And then traveling up in Maine, I see them a little more frequently. So they're they're probably a, a population of plants that are in higher densities in certain places. But that is another common one. Uh, Platanthera is another one that has a number of species in it, and you can find them. Um, they're kind of hard to notice, but in New England alone, there's a dozen plus different species. Uh, these ones are really pretty. They usually have uh, a labellum, which is the the lowest leaf, or I'm sorry, the lowest petal on that that bloom. Uh, they're usually fringed in some way. The Platanthera ciliaris, orange fringed bark, orchid is an orange version of that with like a, a labellum almost looks like a little goatee or, or beard on there. But those are pretty common. Um, something like Aquilinus is found all over New England and they're almost hard to notice because they have green, yellow flowers. They're very tiny. You'd have to be looking for the, the monocot-like leaves. And then once you see one, if you, if you start looking around, you usually see more. But they're, they're an extremely small plant, um, you know, no more than maybe like six or seven inches tall. And that's a, in Vermont anyway, it's an uncommon plant. Massachusetts, it's also uncommon. Rhode Island, it's extremely rare, but that's a widespread um, genera. They go from New England out, out west down into New Mexico and up into Oregon and Washington. Um, the other, let's see what else is here, Spiranthes. Spiranthes is another one that is a fairly common plant seen in, in wet places. It's called the Lady Tresses Orchid. Um, they have white, almost, I think they're all white flowers. They're, the differences between them are pretty minute, so you have to really look at them to see how the flowers are arranged on the inflorescence and probably something to do with hairs on, on leaves or um, around the actual flower. But those are also pretty common. And the other ones... Uh, there's a lot of, if you ever want to look at a complete list of the native and, well, I guess all the orchid family plants that would be found in the New England area, uh, GoBotany is a, a great website. So if you just go to Google and type in GoBotany, it's um, organized and run by the Native Plant Trust out of Framingham, Massachusetts. Uh, so that's a great resource if you're just looking, uh, if you want to see what other uh, orchid species are in New England, and particularly if they occur in your area. There are some really cool cool ones that I, I have, I want to see, and I will at some point. Um, something like Arethusa bulbosa is one that I haven't seen yet in the wild, but it's a fairly... It's more common out in the Midwest uh, and maybe down into like North Carolina. I haven't seen this one, but I, it's it's also it's called the Dragon's Mouth Orchid, the common name for it. But it's a really pretty 
uh, magenta, purple, um, you know, orchid that would be found in a, a wetland of some kind. And there's there's locations around Vermont. I haven't I haven't been lucky enough to see them yet though. But in good time, uh, the one orchid genera that I was going to talk about today is Epipactus, uh, the Helleborine, or false Helleborine, and there's two of them in, that occur in Vermont. Uh, the first one is Epipactus Helleborine. It is a uh, broad-leaved orchid with monocot leaves, parallel venation, uh, it came into New England in 1879. And what's surprising about this orchid is that almost it's all orchid species require a fungal relationship, uh, you know, with a species of fungus. Sometimes that species is very specific for that orchid. Sometimes the orchids can be what would be called generalists and they can form that relationship with fungal species of many different genera. So, uh, you know, you would think that it would be, it's just, you would think that a, an orchid species wouldn't be something that would uh, travel and potentially become invasive. But the Epipactus uh, has done that, and it's often called the weed orchid, and you know, meaning that it can it grows in a, a variety of different places under a variety of different circumstances, and it doesn't really have any specific requirement that it needs, apparently because it's being met. That requirement is being met in a number of different places in a number of different habitats. So, um, the orchid seeds, normally if you think, think about, you know, picture a, a corn kernel or a pumpkin seed, those uh, seeds have what's called endosperm, and endosperm is like a little package of food that goes along with the embryo, and so when you plant that seed, that embryo can live off that food source long enough to create its own roots and start making its own food to get leaves out, uh, you know, chlorophyll, start that whole process. It has to have sort of a, a jumping off point to get there. And in the orchid family of plants, uh, there is no endosperm. And what you have is, if you've ever had an orchid plant in your house, um, or you have one now that's blooming, I have a couple that are blooming, you can actually pollinate uh, your own orchid plants. So if you want to take like a toothpick or a Q-tip will work, you um, stick it up underneath where the pollina are, and you can grab them they will stick to that and you can pollinate the next plant with the next flower with it and so eventually what you'll have is a you, the plant will put energy into forming a seed pod and when you break open that seed pod 
you'll notice it's just uh, it looks like cigarette ash or, or dust uh, and those seeds don't have any endosperm but there are thousands of them in that one seed pod and as opposed to the pumpkin seed or the corn kernel which only has one uh, you know one progeny uh, present in that seed that will then you know pass on those genetics the orchid seed pods have thousands of them and you know they disperse by getting caught on you know the wind or um, you know maybe they're an animal something will catch them and bring them along uh, up in the trees epiphytic orchids um, they may be dispersed by birds and so you know that seed that then is dispersed has to depending on what its criteria is and what fungal um, species it has to connect with to get to act as that endosperm right to be able to pull in those nutrients and resources that it needs because it doesn't have that uh, built into it so that it can grow and start its life off and so those I've heard different things so in some some ways in some species those relationships last forever uh, because most orchids have leaves some of them don't um, you know think about like the ghost orchid in Florida uh, it only has roots and the roots on you know uh, orchids are at least the epiphytic ones you can see the chlorophyll in them so I I wager a guess that the roots of uh, epiphytic orchids do produce chlorophyll and so in some way that you know you also have to think that that ghost orchid is living in a, a very shaded environment um, you know potentially low down in the canopy and might not need a lot of light but might require more of a relationship with the, the fungal life on that tree to get the nutrients that it needs to survive and flower and reproduce um, but so backing up a little bit on uh, the orchid family you can pretty much break down orchids into two groups terrestrial orchids and epiphytic orchids the terrestrial ones uh, require soil so terrestrial earth um, and so the epiphytic ones live high up in canopy or somewhere where there is no soil that's why for example if you buy an orchid somewhere it's usually in some sort of bark substrate and that's for water drainage because those roots require a decent amount of air circulation because that's where they live in the wild so if you want to keep orchids you know putting a, an epiphytic orchid into you know really compact soil isn't going to work very well that being said the epiphytic orchids are a lot easier to keep um, and to grow in a contained setting as opposed to the terrestrial ones 
which are, I've never tried to germinate any orchid seeds like that. Um, it, it's, I'm sure there's somebody out there um, that has done a little bit of research on that and, and might be able to germinate something like good Yara seeds. Uh, the other thing is like potentially, you know, the number of seeds that are contained is a, it's kind of like a indicator that this family of plants may not have high pollination rates. There, there are known studies that the orchid family of plants has members of it that don't provide any nectar reward for a pollinator. They, a lot of times, trick the pollinator into coming to that flower even though there's no nectar for that uh, pollinator there, and then it gets bombarded with uh, the pollena from the, the flower, and then it goes to the next one to see if that one has a reward, and it, it pollinates the next flower with that. So, and a lot of times these are, the flowers have evolved to look like an insect or a particular um, particular species of insect and that's how they you know there's a, a sexual trigger for that pollinator and is pulled in to that flower sometimes those those orchid plants are um, providing something to that pollinator whether it's uh, oils or resins or some sort of um, something that it's it's giving that, that that bee or wasp or fly is going to use later. But the likelihood that, you know, all of this works, um, you know, evolutionarily, I would, I would guess that there hasn't been a high success rate in pollination of these. And so the strategy, the evolutionary strategy, would be to have a lot of seeds in one flower. And so if that flower does get pollinated and a, a seed pot is produced, then you have, you know, a lot more uh, opportunities once those seeds are dispersed for uh, your progeny to grow and reproduce on their own. So back to uh, terrestrial and epiphytic. In most of the United States, the orchids that you're going to find are going to be terrestrial orchids. But in Florida, um, there are some species of epiphytic orchids like Encyclia tapensis is a widely cultivated species of this and you can find it down there. It's a native to the, the Florida region. And of course the ghost orchid and a bunch of other ones that are down there. Um, the terrestrial orchids however <clears throat> in New England uh, Epipactus is one of them, and it, it's not from here. It's, it was discovered in New York in 1879 uh, in Syracuse. 
and it's become the most common woodland orchid in its range. So, you know, that's a, I, I think that's a true statement based on, you know, having been out in the woods and the number of times I see that particular plant and there aren't, I haven't seen any other orchids all day, but I might see 10 of those. And that's, it's just a striking comparison to make because we have so many, you know, 21 genera of, uh, or 20 other genera of orchids um, that can be found here. And they're pretty hard to come by, even though some of them are fairly common. So the strategy of this plant, um, you know, it's doing something different than all the other plants, all the other orchid family plants in this area. And I'm not sure exactly what that is, but I started looking into um, a lot of different things about Epipactus. And uh, there were some interesting things that I found out. If you've ever seen this plant in the forest or in your yard or anywhere, it's, I've seen them be fairly small, uh, 10 inches tall. I've seen them be huge with 30 or 40 flowers um, all up the stem and the inflorescence. They, they flower June through August. The flowers, I can see how they would be, how this plant would be missed a lot of times when it's not in flower. It looks, um, you know, it could be like a little hosta seedling or it looks pretty nondescript, uh, strap-like leaves, kind of fleshy. If, you, if you're used to looking at or orchids uh, or orchids in the vegetative state, um, you know, you, you'd probably, you could get really good at recognizing this. I see it most often uh, in its vegetative form, but the ones that seem to be getting a little more light in certain areas uh, will flower. The flowers are green, kind of a dark pink purple color. Um, sometimes they can be on the verge of brown. And I haven't had an opportunity to actually um, take into account what these plants smell like. I, I may do that next season when when the time comes in June, June through August and um, see if I can detect any scent in them. There was a study done in 2005 by a group of researchers from the Institute of Plant Biology, Poland, uh, looks like a bunch of people from Poland, and what they were doing was they were looking to see what the chemical constituents of um, the Epipactus flowers were. They noticed that pollinators, when they would visit the Epipactus flowers, 
they would become visibly disoriented and they wanted to see what the flowers, how the flower was affecting these pollinators. And so they did some chemical analysis um, and they found out that oxycodone was actually being produced as a chemical constituent that was intoxicating the uh, bees or wasps and they would then sort of like drunkenly fly from one flower to the next flower and sort of, I don't know, imagine yourself walking into a room with uh, <laughs> a bunch of chairs all strewn about and you're intoxicated and you're trying to, to land on one correctly, you probably bump into a bunch of them. And so the hypothesis was that this is maybe a reproductive strategy on behalf of the plants to, because the, the flowers aren't morphologically attractive to any particular species, if you're a generalist in terms of the pollinators that you have visiting you, um, you would want to be, it, I'm sorry, if you were a, if you had a particular pollinator that you needed that was, and that pollinator only visited those plants, you, you know, evolutionarily, you, it's thought that you would evolve to look like that insect in order to attract it to you, you know, be the opposite sex of the, the one you're looking for, the pollinators. And, but if you're a generalist and it doesn't matter, it's the, what your flower looks like morphologically would take a back seat to some other strategy. And so it's hypothesized in this case that the Epipactus plant, although it doesn't look like an insect, there are insects attracted to it in some way. And so there's other chemical constituents that it would be giving out. Maybe the, the insect is collecting pollen. Maybe it thinks that the Epipactus flower looks like um, Veratrum veridae, which is the, the false hellebore. Um, you see it it's usually in wetlands, has really wide strap-shaped leaves that they clasp the stem and they shoot up. I've seen them be, you know, three feet tall maybe. And the flower stems on them, when, the, when they're in flower, they're, the flowers are just as green as the leaves are. And you can see all their anthers inside, the yellow. Um, but they're, they're very pretty to see out in a, in a wetland and they're kind of cool because you don't notice them because they don't stand out because they're green flowers, which, you know, it's just a strange color to, <laughs> to make your petals, to make your petals green. Um, but so maybe, you know, the actual pollinators of that uh, wetland plant mistake the flowers for the, the epipactus, and they're the ones visiting that. Now, if you're uh, a generalist, you know, trying to keep that pollinator around because you've just deposited your pollina on the back of um, 
that pollinator and you want to ensure that that bee doesn't take it to uh, you know the veratrum or the daisy or the multiflora rose or anything else because that's going to be that's not going to do anything for the epipactus species so if you can intoxicate your pollinator a little bit so that it kind of starts to fly away and stumbles and there's your your little population of orchids around you um your little genetic pool there can be shared more closely instead of you know increasing the chances that your pollen lands on a plant that is going to be compatible with it and it can produce the thousands of seeds that you're looking to produce to uh, further uh, your genetics, then that's a very interesting way to go about it. And this sort of, throughout all these episodes, I talk about different plants and, um, you know, one of the underlying things I think is like plants are way cooler than we'll ever be and they can do things that I don't even think we can comprehend at this point. Um, I would venture to say that plants may be more evolved than we are. They've definitely been here for longer. Um, just the things that they, they're able to do and produce and evolve to produce and they can they're self-sufficient they can survive on their own they make their own food they have certain requirements they've been able to differentiate across every habitat in the world um they live underwater <laughs> like they i don't know they there's there's so many different you know there's there's even plants that live underground they're subterranean plants um they've just been able to occupy every nook and cranny of the the planet that we live on and, and you know in a way that wasn't detrimental to any other species uh until we came along and started moving plants around and that's when things kind of started going out of whack in terms of habitat and stuff like that but we've been uh the you know the impetus to do that we've started all those balls rolling and we sort of interfered with the natural community of things well you know for our own interests and so the you know, plants are, I don't think there'll ever be a time when, you know, I will stop learning about different plants and the ways that they interact with us and the things that they can do that we really have no capacity or idea, you know, what they could pull off. Um, that's a good segue into some other 
plants that I'd like to talk about. I've been recently interested in a lot of different cacti species for a while. Um, but, you know, living in Vermont, it's very hard to, you know, we, I grow cactus inside different, different species here and there, but, um, outside in the garden, you know, it'd be so cool if I could grow a saguaro or something out here, but they, the only species that, or, or genera that, and maybe nobody knows this, I mean, I'm sure some of you do, um, but there are cactus that you can grow in New England. The Opuntia or Opuntia cactus, prickly pear cactus, as it's recently become more of a uh, common sort of juice or fruit that somebody would eat in a, a smoothie or I don't know, I don't know. It's a, a well-known species, whether or not people actually know what it is or where it's from, but in, in New England, it's mostly, it's a, I think it's rare in Massachusetts. It's at its northern range in Massachusetts. I have some that I, so the, a punch of cactus can propagate asexually uh, through clones or the pads. One of those entire pads where it's started growing off the initial pad, you can take those, let them dry out for a few days until it's sort of like calloused over so it won't rot. You can put it in soil and um, it will eventually put out seeds. I mean, um, put out roots. And so I did that a couple of years ago and I had them all take off. I had four of them and I planted them out and they, they do fine. I, I put them in the greenhouse and they, they sort of look a little tough in the spring. Like they've had a long, last winter was a little bit longer than this one seems to be right now, but they all pulped up, um, plumped up and really, uh, started putting out new growth. I haven't seen them flower yet, but that's an amazing thing. I have, you know, cactus at its northern, beyond its northern range growing, uh, in a greenhouse that it's not heated in the wintertime. So it's, it gets cold out there and I, I put a little hay over them to insulate them for the winter, but I think they're gonna, they're gonna do well and I hope they keep spreading. It's, it'll be cool to have a little like prickly pear patch up there and if they flower, I'll get some fruit off it that I can enjoy at some point. Um, but so in, in Massachusetts, in terms of its native range, the areas like Nantucket and uh, Truro, the whole, like if you imagine the Cape of Massachusetts as your flexing arm, the fist to the elbow, and then sort of like the armpit, and then the Nantucket Islands off there, uh, off the, the south, southwest part of it, or the southeast part of it. Um, but the other associated species with these, they, they're, you know, they prefer sand dune type habitats. And so other 
species that you would find in these habitats or something like red cedar, uh, bayberry, the morella, Pennsylvanica, dune grass, amophila, seaside goldenrod, which is a, a really cool plant on its own. Um, those, they, they almost have like rubber-like leaves and it must be a, an adaptation to water loss or high salinity content, something coming off the coast there because that, that plant I see all over the coast of Massachusetts up to the, the North Shore. That one's um, Solidago sempervirens and poison ivy, uh, Toxicodendron radicans, which is, uh, that's, poison ivy is kind of one of those plants that people mistake, uh, they confuse it. And it is one of those plants that can look like everything else, has three leaves. People confuse it with Virginia creeper, which I would put into this category of habitat plants that a puncher would probably be found with. The uh, Toxicodendron group in New England, uh, the poison sumac, which is vernix, Toxicodendron vernix, and radicans is the poison ivy, and then the other one is poison oak. That one is Toxicodendron ribergii, and it's also commonly called the western poison ivy. But the poison oak and poison ivy, they almost look identical in their leaf structure, leaf shape, the number of leaves. The only difference, the, you know, if you're going to uh, be looking out for them, the, I, I see poison ivy a lot inland. Uh, you know, in fields, growing along the ground. Sometimes it's up in trees as a vine. The, it, it's here and there, it doesn't seem to like to do that as much in this particular area. But the uh, poison oak out on the coast, it will grow like a tree. It will have uh, a pretty decent sized stem on it growing upright and as well as grow as a vine into a tree and so into another tree and so this one uh, is a little more scary because it's not that it's going to be around your legs and spreading uh, you know through rhizomes like that along the ground it's going to be at your face growing <laughs> right over like an archway that you have to walk through and or it's going to be in the you know sand dune area growing up through all the morella and um around all these other plants and be sort of where you're going to be walking if there's not a boardwalk or something um the other one poison sumac which i have had the pleasure of being immersed in um an extremely dense swamp uh, doing some work for the state of Vermont up in Alberg um, at the dunes there and there's a there's a wetland that sort of is behind the road that cuts through it parallels the beach 
at Auburn Dunes. And on the back, on the inland side of that, there's an enormous wetland. And there was a, a lot of Phragmites in there, like seven or eight acres of it that um, they wanted us to manage for them. And when we got in there, luckily the water was low, so it wasn't as flooded as it could have been. But there was poison sumac shrubs scattered in, I don't know, a 20% density throughout this whole thing. And, you know, they've put uh, taxonomists, I don't know, I don't know who's doing this stuff in the in the upper levels of the taxonomy world, but they have put poison sumac in the same genera as toxicodendron, which, um, or as poison sumac, which I don't, I don't know if it, it's always just not made sense to me. I get that they all make this the same chemical that's really annoying for humans because it gives us rashes and makes us itch and can be really painful and fatal for some people. Um, but based on, you know, the leaf structure and I don't know, I'd have to look into why exactly they put these because I would think that you know, it would make more sense to me, which the synonym for this is Ruis vernix, which Ruis is the sumac family or the sumac genera here in Vermont. And so, you know, it would make more sense to me to put it into that genus and have it like, have it be the poisonous, you know, what its common name is, poison sumac. Uh, but this this thing grows like, it has a very interesting bark. It has red stems. The leaves, I always think of the leaves as uh, they sort of point straight up or they're, they're at least more vertical than what you would think of as, a, say, a staghorn sumac uh, leaflet to look like, where all those leaves are opposite each other, laid out along the length of the stem. These ones sort of, even the the side branches sort of point up more than anything else. And I've 98% of the time seen them only in wetland areas. So that's a, you know, if you are ever going through a wetland, that's a plant to be on the lookout for. It has a bark that looks very similar to almost uh, what a staghorn sumac bark would look like. Um, has very small horizontal lentils up the stem. It's kind of a grayish white with black splotches on it here and there. But the stems are, the stems of the branches where the leaves are coming out of is where um, you can really notice that, that red coloration. And the berries are a white. And supposedly the berries are, you know, foraged on by a number of different game birds and uh, wildlife, pheasants, grouse. Um, so they do have, you know, uh, an ecological value in, in the wildlife setting. I don't, you know, I don't 
dislike this plant as much as poison ivy or poison sumac. I mean, um, the uh, poison oak species, because they they're, they're just more common and they're I run into them a lot more often. And I just the these being a wetland plant, there's very few people who are going through the wetland and sort of touching everything they see. Although when I did work for the New England Wildflower Society, I remember one of the botanists there sharing a story and it happened to us later that year. Um, she was saying that she was out with a bunch of people who were all sort of like looking at plants and you know, when you first get, I guess I, I do it too still. Um, I do it cautiously now though, but when you first see something that you don't know, you sort of like take a leaf off and you break it up and you smell it and you, you look at it with a hand lens and like, you know, fold the leaf in half and see if there's hairs on the midrib or, uh, you know, touch the bark and see what the leaf scar looks like. And so you're sort of inspecting this whole thing, right? Giving it the, the full rundown. And so they were all doing this to the poison sumac. And then they realized that, uh, it was poison sumac. And I think they, I think they all got rashes, uh, all over their face. And like, it's, it sounded pretty bad. But that same year, uh, I don't even remember where we were working, somewhere like, I want to say like Newton, Massachusetts or something like that. Um, it was this development and they must have had some, it was a housing development. So in a cul-de-sac, it was very urban and they had a little wetland attached to it that we were doing some work in and you know, we were all sitting down having lunch sort of on a curb in this cul-de-sac and there were about five of us there all sitting in a line. And I remember the, one of the landowners came out and they said, did you see the poison sumac in the wetland? And so I didn't, I didn't say anything and I don't, I don't think anyone else said anything either. <clears throat> and, um, our, I guess our boss at the time sort of said, yeah, I did. And she said, would you take care of that? And he said, sure, I'll do that. And so, you know, prior to having lunch, we had been cutting roses, multi-floor rows that they are hand pulling them. I'm not sure what we were doing, but all of us had cuts up our arms and, you know, roses are pretty, it can cut pretty deep. It, it almost fish hooks you and then you get a bunch of little stab wounds all over your arms where you were pulling things around your hands. And so we were all sort of, you know, had a bunch of uh, wounds on us at lunchtime. And so he went back after lunch to go cut down this poison sumac and he used a handsaw and that created a bunch of dust and um i don't think I, I think he just had a he might have had a long sleeve shirt on but he ended up getting it all over his all over his cuts and it got into his bloodstream and so i think i want to say that was like a friday and then on monday 
I showed back up at the office, and when I walked in, he was sort of sitting at his chair, and he turned around, and uh, he had, like, he never wore glasses, but he was wearing glasses. I think, like, the frames were punched out of them. And he had a poultice, like a, a big white bandage, on his right eye. And the glasses were sort of holding this thing against his face. And he he was covered in... His legs were all swollen. And what had happened was he went to the, the doctor because the poison sumac... Um, the Russiaal had gotten into his bloodstream and gone basically systemic through his, his body and it caused him to break out in such a bad reaction that he had to have, um, I think they gave him a steroid or a steroid shot to help him get through it. But so his poultices were all covered with, you know, we were working for New England Wildflower Society, so his poultices were all covered with impatience. Uh, jewelweed that he had made up and then put on his face, which I think is probably a was probably a smart thing to do. Um, but the those, you know, the few times that I've encountered poison sumac since then, I have been able to avoid it, and you know, by being covered up and wearing gloves if I am gonna touch it. And just being careful what touches my face. So walking through some sort of deer trail in the woods, um, you know, I do that anyway, even if uh, it doesn't look like there's any poison ivy around, having things land on your face. I'd, if I have to get poison ivy, I'd rather not get it anywhere on my face. <laughs> um, so in the next few episodes... Uh, we're going to be talking with my buddy Diego, um, coming up next week. I'm going to go see him. He's been, he and I met through, I don't remember how we met, through Instagram maybe, or, um, but he and I don't live very far apart, and he had some seeds that looked really cool, and so he, he's a very generous dude, um, is really into autoflower growing and hot peppers, um, so he's, I'm sure that the conversation will be a good one. We'll have a lot of things to talk about. I, you know, with the pandemic and everything, um, I really haven't seen him in a little while, so it'll be great to reconnect that way. And then the episode after that, we're going to have, uh, Rob Crenson from Prairie Moon Nursery. And I was doing a little work the other day trying to figure out I have a client who wants uh, a pollinator meadow put in and so I was going through you know the specs on the sheet and how many sort of how many seeds am I going to need to make this happen and what species I was going to select to put in there and I started looking up you know Vermont native seeds and uh you know, different, different options for how I could get something that was sort of like all in one, an all in one mix in a bag, you know, like you'd buy, uh, a bag of cover crop seed. And so as I started looking at that, I found this, 
very cookie cutter website that said Vermont wildflower seed mixes. And I, so I started looking, clicking on some and looking and see what, what was in the mix. And there was a bunch of stuff that just isn't, it's not from here at all. Then you look at the, you know, there's sort of a, it, it looks like an out of the box website for, you know, some advertising company and it just has the right words in the title so that when you search things it comes up but it's not anywhere near what I would expect it to be for um, a company selling seeds as Vermont native wildflower seeds uh, because there was a number of things in that that sh shouldn't have been there at all so I started digging a little further and I found Prairie Moon and Prairie Moon had um, a number of different things that I really liked about them. So I decided to reach out and talk to them about doing some pollinator meadow plantings, how to prepare for that um, as, a, as a landowner and species, other considerations to take into account. Um, Rob has some background in landscape design um, as well as native plants, so it'll be in pollinator meadow rest restoration. So it'll be cool to talk to him and uh, yeah, get some information on that. And hopefully, you know, pollinator meadows are a big thing right now. The like uh, milkweed project and a bunch of different things. People are, you know, I would love to see lawns disappear and you know, everyone to be planting something that really benefits uh, the environment. And however, you know, however small that area might be, um, every little bit counts. So uh, trying to push that message out there and get people really in the, in the mode of like paying attention to what their you know, if they're making the right decision, making the right decision uh, all the way through that process. So you want a pollinator meadow, that's cool. Make sure that, you know, all the seeds you're putting down and all the plants you're growing are native to the area that you're growing them in to have the highest amount of ecological impact that you can. So hope you all are looking forward to that. Um, I am. And yeah, I hope you you enjoyed today's episode and got to take a few things away from it. Um, got some things to look up, some new things to check out. And yeah, we'll talk to you next week.